are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio Neil. Neil is an artist in Tucson. We'll be right back with Neil, but first let's talk about lying. All right, so it's on my mind this week for a bunch of different reasons, but the major one is I visited Mexico and I visited an old friend there. And, you know, you can kind of feel when somebody's lying to you. You can see it in their body or being evasive at the very least, like some evasion and lying stuff. And it always drives me so crazy. And then I think, you know, you always think like, well, no, I mean, they might not be lying. You're pretty sure they are. Your intuition says it and their body language says it. But you think, why would they lie to me about this? Like, this isn't even something you have to lie about. Right. And then it goes on. And then you catch them in the lies because you're sort of, at that point, attentive. And then it's like, but wait, you said this. And then they lie more, which makes you more crazy because they have another reason why the reason of the reason of the thing of why they were, you know. And so everything ends up kind of being put back on you a little bit. And I've been trying to f- figure out, like, there's there's some fun, harmless line that my mom used to do, which was basically kind of like apocryphal storytelling <laughs> about <laughs> things that didn't actually happen. And she's a good storyteller. She's done a lot less of that as she's gotten healthier and our relationship has gotten healthier. Sometimes I catch myself sort of lying because my I'm forgetful. I'm like, wait, no, did I do that? Or was that my friend? Is that it's just a story I remember. We we all lie a little bit. We lie to ourselves a lot. And I was thinking that's the one of the connections with depression. Like, I don't think that lying, you know, is to like protect the other person, which often somebody who lies says, oh, well, you know, I just didn't want to hurt your feelings. Sometimes people are lying to get out of something. But what I was picking up on with this friend was shame and worry. The body language of shame and worry. And I think that that's, that's the bad part of lying. It puts you in a position of feeling off a little. And that that then doesn't let you have a connection with that person. And they may even believe what they're saying or believe that it's best for you or best for them. It almost never is. It's when you're lying, you're lying to them, but you're also lying to yourself, either that it's okay or you actually believe your lies. That's what would happen with my mom. I'd realize, oh, she believes this right now. This is why it's such so convincing. And it could be about the simplest thing or the grandest thing, but you interweave these facts and it seems real and you start to believe something happened that didn't. I find it very interesting. They've done a bunch of research on your favorite memories are the least likely to be true. Every time you look at a memory and remember it, you change it. You change it to fit your current paradigm. (laughs) And you retell these stories so your favorite stories are the least likely to be true. And the things you haven't thought about in 30 years are the most likely to be true. Which sounds crazy, but this is how we construct our reality. So lying is sort of a basic mechanism of the human brain that you want to remake a story to fit your current beliefs about yourself about your world, 
And when it comes to depression, the main part of my line was I'm fine. People ask me how I'm doing and I'd say, I'm fine. I always say I'm fine, whether I'm fine or not. But I think that depression, the problem is it's that shame again and worry that if you just tell people I'm not okay, that they will reject you because Facebook shows that they're all doing really well. You know, social media kind of contributes to this line of how you're doing. Social media lets you put on whatever face you want to put on. And of course, none of it is the real, real story. When you're in a bad place, even your ability to have like a real experience of what's happening isn't there. And then your experience of life is a whole other reality with a little gray cloud over it. You know, what is real, I guess, is what it comes down to. Is it really a beautiful day because it's a rainy day in Tucson today? Or is it really like somebody's worst day? Both those things can be true at the same time. The like manipulative lie is the one that I have a problem with. The I'm fine lie is a lie to yourself and a lie to everybody else that things are actually okay. I think that's what that is. The lie to get out of something or to get something is the one that I have a problem with. It bothers me. And I don't think you gain anything from it. I don't think you get anything of value by manipulating other people. You see it in politics. You see it in in life. You might gain money and you might gain some respect by lying, but you lose the money and you lose the respect inside yourself. And then nothing's worth anything. That's my opinion. I don't know if there's some sociopaths out there who would argue with me. <laughs> I'm sure there are. But that's the lie that I don't like. And especially when you can't even figure out what they're getting from the lying, but you know that they're manipulating and lying to you. <laughs> it just makes me crazy. So I've been on a rant this week about that stuff with the old friend, and then it's making me think of the other people in my life that I know lie quite often. And usually it's it's sad to me, and it's hard to form any kind of friendship with them. And then with depression, it's hard to know who's okay and who's struggling. People were all surprised when I started stopped saying I'm fine because I look fine and I'm good. I'm a good liar about being fine. I can rise to the occasion. So on that note, I hope you all are having a not fine or fine week <laughs> and that you you have some support from people who can see you, really see you and know when you're lying to yourself or that you can tell for yourself when it's real or not. All right, love to you all. Today we have with us in the studio, Neil. Neil is an artist in Tucson. Hello, Neil. Welcome to the Depression Session. Oh, uh, thank you, Laura, for having me. Thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. So what's new for you? What do you want to share with our audience? Well, I have a long history with depression. Yeah. And anxiety and PTSD and bipolar disorder and whatever other diagnosis did you early come up with. <laughs> so I've struggled with these diagnoses for many years, and when I came to understand that they're just a description, they're not something you could cut me open and find, then then I just recently, at 56 years old, became willing to spend some time and understand these diagnoses more and to actually spend some time finding a good therapist, not just any therapist, to really start to, to dig into it and see what it's about. What do you think it is about being in your 50s? Is that a different place to work from or just life experience? or? Well, I think I have a strong, a strong motivator at this point in that I want to be 
the best kid I can be for my folks getting older. And I'm an only child and feeling dutiful, I think is the best word for it. Like just wanting to do my best for my folks as they get older and don't have anybody else. So it kind of calls upon you to figure some of this stuff out that you've been able to not think about so much or? Yeah. And well, the truth is I've been looking at it for 30 years on and off, uh, but it took a long time to get a proper diagnosis and it took a long time dealing with the VA to get any sort of help. It took, it took being homeless in San Francisco for a couple of years to, to get into a veterans program which is really pretty worthless other than the fact that they got me some resources. Yeah. They got me some money. And and a, a social worker in Oakland even told me that. He's like, we're just going to help you. You know, since you don't want to stay here in Oakland, we're going to help you get some resources because you can't do anything without resources. And I really see that today. Like, I think uh, I've been, I don't know if privileged would be the word, but like blessed is certainly an accurate description that, that I have some resources and I also had some education and a pretty helpful family, uh, to get some help. I think people need stable housing and people need, uh, stable resources before you can open up Pandora's box and, and look into what's going on inside. You know, people have their, coping systems in place and that's probably shouldn't be disturbed if people don't have the resources it's it's interesting how things always dovetail into something i'm working out i've been thinking about doing i was thinking about it today just driving i was drive past the park on 22nd mm-hmm. and 22nd and 4th and i think there's a lot of people living there and i i always wonder what what do they really want what do they really need and i've thought like could I do something just to ask? And, you know, I love stories in general, but I also have been thinking in the last couple of weeks of a project called, what do you want? What do you need? And just mm. ask the two questions because that I don't know. And I bet what people will say will surprise all of us. I haven't been in that circumstance and to just go out and say, what do you want? And leave it open. And then, okay. And the second question is, what do you need? And make it a podcast if they're willing to be on, you know, they could be anonymous, but willing to share what that would be. I just am curious, given carte blanche, what people would want or need. And Well, there's a lot to say about that. I mean, there's different levels of uh, mental illness, most certainly. And there's also uh, the issue of cognitive abilities. Uh, not everybody's born with a head full of brains. Or not, or they didn't get proper nutrition when they were a kid, or whatever their problem is. But I always felt, I still feel guilty sometimes for be, having been able to navigate the system. And I really had to navigate the system because I had some like ding dong social workers and other people that I went to for help that did not know what they were doing. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, I had an internet connection and I had half a brain. Right. And I could figure it out. Also, I mean, people with mental health diagnoses, period, have like a hard time getting health service, like physical health services, just because they're who they are. They get sized up by the medical people and they get treated this way or that way. There's a name for that I learned. It's, it's, um, I heard you use the word stigma earlier. I heard another term that's really good. It's called diagnostic overshadowing. And my, my other friend, uh, my other friend is a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. And I told her that term, and she says, that's great. She says, we use stigma 
But I realized that when you call it diagnostic overshadowing, it isn't a mark on the on the patient. It's a mark on the doctor. They're overlooking because things. they're 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 looking at you, thinking they know who you are because you have this diagnosis. When diagnosed people come in all flavors, man, like everybody's an individual. And these people that start thinking they know everybody because they've talked to 500 people, they don't know everybody. Right. Or if they think they do, they shouldn't be in that job. (laughs) True story. On that note, Neil, tell us the story of your depression. I struggled with depression and anxiety and mood swings a lot of my life, at least since my early 20s, although I struggled with a lot of things when I was a kid. My... Mom got pregnant out of wedlock in 1961, and my mother had also been orphaned uh, like five years before that and had her family scattered to the four winds, and my mother was a single mom for like three years, and then I got a stepdad, and uh, my stepdad drank a lot, but my stepdad was a really popular guy. I was really popular at his job, really popular in the neighborhood, and that was never really known by anybody else that my dad was, a, my stepdad was an alcoholic, uh, a wife beater, a child beater, a little bit of a child molester, a lot of things. And then when I was in, uh, I don't know, like a junior or a sophomore in high school, I worked at a grocery store and there was a recruiting station next to it. And my parents were really liberal. And my dad had told me sometime in there, he says, man, I'm not going to send you to college. I can't afford it. It was the late 70s. There's all this inflation, bad economy. Can't afford to send you to college. So I, I thought, well, I'll manipulate my parents and show up at the house with a recruiter because you have to get your parents to sign when you're underage. And I had taken their tests and I was a really smart kid. So I could have any job, any high tech job I wanted in the service. And so it wasn't a half bad idea. And I wasn't really like a college ready sort of kid. Not that I wasn't smart. I just wasn't disciplined. But, uh, the recruiter showed up at my house and my dad said, come on in rather than, you know, crossing fingers with a cross against the military because my parents were pretty liberal. And so I joined the military and went off to Asia, uh, for most of the six years I was in the service and Uh, That was in the 80s, and it was peacetime, but there's a lot of ways to get screwed up in the service without there being combat, most surely. Like, it's a different world, and people that never did that will just never know. That is just not... I mean, you can watch all the war movies you want, and you never understand what that's like. It's, It's glorious on one hand and horrible on the other. And uh, when I was in the service, some particularly bad things happened to me that that involved uh, personal assault, sexual assault, and uh, that wasn't something I could deal with for a long time. Something that I told myself never happened and did a lot of alcohol and drug abuse to deal with, a lot of other compulsive acting out, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. Um, and for years at the VA, the VA didn't recognize, the only, the only type of PTSD that the VA would recognize was from combat. And then at some point later on, only women were um, 
treated for that. And, you know, I was told one time when I asked a, a, a shrink there, I said, uh, so like, maybe I have PTSD from, I don't know, getting, you know, raped or something. And he said, oh, well, we don't have anything like, we don't have anything for men for that. Sorry. And that was it. And so that changed, that changed years later. And uh, I was in another state. And to tell you the truth, like California and the San Francisco Bay Area is like, they have a well-staffed VA with the best and the bright, not maybe not the best and the brightest, but like one, one click down. Like it's pretty, the standard is pretty high there. And I don't find that to be true in Tucson. I don't find that to be true for VA mental health services. I just don't. I think it's a joke. Although others could disagree with me. That's just been my experience there. So I was in another city. I was in, in, in Oakland, California, and was homeless and living on the street there, staying with an old girlfriend for a while. And she got me into this vet's housing program. And once you're housed... Then, you know, you're stable, you're semi-stable. They don't call that stabilized, but you're semi-stable. And then you have a place to start and you can begin to seek services. And that was three years ago. I did something else. I The, the VA in Oakland helped me get some money. They helped me get a disability check from the VA. And then they also helped me get it from Social Security. And then I went back to Peru, where I had been before in the mountains down outside of Cusco, in a really clean, beautiful place with really calm people whose motto is tranquilo. If you ask them how, how they are, they're always tranquil. And they really are. Like They're like the coolest, calmest people I've ever been around. And that was really good medicine for me. And to eat really good food from a old world market, and to drink water out of a spring and learn some yoga and tai chi and do some hiking in the mountains. And they have a whole sort of mysticism there about the air, breathing the air in certain high mountain passes. I believe there's a rejuvenating effect, not not like to any place high, but there's these like certain places and that really helped me. And I also did some work with a couple medicine people, shaman people down there. That was really helpful. And then my parents needed my help, and I'm an only kid. And I did. my father has late-stage Parkinson's. My mother has been his caregiver. I'm the only kid. So my dad was falling down and couldn't talk very good anymore. And my mother was freaking out. So I came back almost a year ago and I've been trying to be as helpful as I can. And so I told myself, if I'm going to come back here, boy, I'm going to really have to step it up to like stay healthy. So I need, you know, it's harder here. It's hard. You know, it's easy where I've been living down there because there's really not any bad food to eat. I don't have any bad influences around me. I mean, it's like just easy to be healthy there. And here it's a lot of, for me, it feels like a lot of work, but you know, and I have like old friends here to like, you know, fall in with and like go get drunk with. And like, I don't want to do that. Like that doesn't help. It doesn't go anywhere good for me. So I decided to get a therapist here, like away from the VA. And to uh, I'm going to the Zen Institute today to, to sign up for something over there. And I do a lot of yoga and 
ride my bike and you know I made like when I used to live here I never would eat I never make it a point like if it was inconvenient to eat good food I'd probably veer from it so now I spent a lot of time like establishing a better dietary plan and I and I feel really good that I've done that too like I got away from the VA and I got a doctor I got a shrink I got a therapist and that's a lot of work and it you know dealing with the system has always been really difficult for me in my adult life and so just doing it like muster and courage and get a phone with a planner in it and go to appointments and do all these things and do all these things I couldn't do after I lost my ability to make money so if we don't have resources I'm really you know to anybody out there that needs some help and is lacking in resources, find resources. Find local agencies to help you. If you don't feel like the first person's helping you, go to another one. I, I've used one here in town that I think is really good, and that's the Jewish Family Services. And I'm not a Jew, and you don't need to be either to get help from them. But often in, t in terms of mental health care, if you're if you're mentally ill and you don't have any resources, it doesn't cost you anything, and you'll get good care there. And they're just infinitely helpful, actually. And so uh, I feel good today. I feel positive. My cup is half full. Just know that there's help and hope. Man, I've just been to such dark places and made my way through it. Had a lot of angels. A lot of people helped me. That's a big obstacle I see for a lot of people is they don't want to ask anybody for help. I can remember being at the Oakland VA the first day I went there and I, I had, I had not been heard at the Tucson VA for years. And I went into the Oakland VA and I went in screaming, help me. And I didn't stop screaming, help me till I had an appointment in a couple of days. So that worked really good. And. I'm glad I did that, and I wish the best to everybody out there suffering from depression or any other mental health issues. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for your story. I really appreciate it. There's yeah. a couple things in there I want to talk about a little more. One is persistence, hmm. and, and it's really hard when you're struggling physically, like I've had friends who've struggled to get physical help that they need, or mentally. And I have experienced, as well as other people, when you're mentally not doing well, and you, you have to persist and persist and persist when you're already hard and it's hard just to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. and, and it, but it is what it takes to finally get help. Mm -hmm. I keep wishing there was just a simpler way. And I don't know what that is because I, I have a friend who's a case manager and they've, they've just got her doing, I actually have two friends who are case managers and both of them, they just have them doing an insane amount of intakes and, and case management. And I hear that from the industry in general. It's not just Tucson, but it's just, it's just like an overload of what you're supposed to do and you're not supposed to do extra hours, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, and you're dealing with kids or you're dealing with, you know, people who are out on the streets or you're dealing, you know, you're just dealing with like, you know, trying to help people. Like that's the whole reason getting into it. And then they load you down to where you can't really help anybody very much yeah. and literally it's the squeaky wheel if you go in screaming you're more like oh, I, told him, I even told him that do i need to be the squeaky wheel here I can this do is it. me i'm squeaking and i'm not going to stop squeaking until i have an appointment i yeah. need to talk to your boss hello and just do it i'm in the mental health clinic i can be as crazy as i need to be to get help like i've been hiding that before 
And then it can backfire. I went to U of A. This was a physical thing. I get hives mm. unless I take hydroxyzine. And this has mm. been true since I was about 13. I've been to a million allergist. I'm no, a no, allergic hydroxyzine. It also will, um, it's also for anxiety. Sometimes they oh, yeah, uh, yeah. diagnose it for that, anxiety. Yeah. But it is an antihistamine okay. and it, it works really well. I mean, if I take a bunch of Benadryl, it'll work. Mm -hmm. But the hydroxyzine does it with less. Mm. Only 10 milligrams. And I'm like, that's the one. Mm. And but I have to have a prescription. You can't just get it over the counter. I went in to get my prescription had run out and I was trying to navigate U of A to get more. And I went in and I'm like, listen, you know, I'm out. I'm already breaking out. I have to teach today. In about eight hours, I'm going to be covered in welts all over my body. And I just don't want it. And because it's also for anxiety, and I do have anxiety, and it's probably... Especially when you get hives. But especially <laughs> when you get hives all over your body, it really makes you anxious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was having a little little freak out over it. And then she's like, well, come over here. Like, she took me away from where everybody was, sat me down. She said, sometimes we're just, like, under a lot of pressure. And she was treating me like a drug addict asking for some illegal yeah, thing. Exactly. And I'm like, no. How do I just get this prescription refill? Because I've been calling people and I've been trying, you know, and it's been three days. And they're moving in slow. Yeah. And then they treat you like you're, you're there's something, you know, wrong with you. So I'm like, no, don't treat me like a moron. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring up like this persistence things. You just almost have to have a meltdown for, to get help sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think also we only see their system from the front door it's easy to get really pissed off at yes. them i've been really pissed off at them they told me once at the va when i had gallstones in march i was in so much pain and they were moving in slow motion and i even had the thought like okay this must be like a traumatic thing where it's slowing down my perception of time or something i'm making excuses for them but then i realized no they're moving really slow and i said something about it, explosively and this guy stopped and shook his finger in my face and he said, Sir, this isn't like on TV, on those emergency room shows. It doesn't work that way. We have protocol here. At that moment, I didn't settle with that. But later and since then in the month, since then I've realized and I've read a lot about the shambles that our medical system is in, let alone our mental health system. Yes. The insurance companies have made us like, I don't know, 50th on the scale in terms yeah. of quality of healthcare, and that those people are working amidst that protocol yes. and they can't do anything nope. without that computer on that roll around cart to tell them what to do. They have to ask you a series of questions. They put it in and an algorithm tells them the next thing to do. This ain't your grandpa's doctoring. No. Not at all. Which I grew up with that. I had the same doctor my entire childhood yeah. and into my adulthood yeah. who knew me. The other thing I wanted to mention was the persistence part and the other part that really struck me was the people trying to navigate the system may not be on a, very able to think logically. Even you get someone and they're not very bright. I had a therapist once and I, I asked for yeah. someone else because I'm like, she's reading out of her book basically, but she's not very analytical. And this is what you're saying about the VA. You didn't get the care that you needed there, but you were able to get it in San Francisco because there's a different caliber person working there. Just, or they're just so burnt out. Yeah. That they yeah. just, it's like you're, you're just, you're one of, you know, 20 people they're going to see today. Three o'clock in the afternoon after they've had people screaming at them and throwing chairs. Yeah. And take a saint. But I do think, I mean, I've learned this with physical medical care as well. Like, 
this whole idea of just like taking whatever doctor is ridiculous when you have the internet to vet your doctor. Mm-hmm. And I would say that just really quickly, like WebMD and Vitals, that's two websites. You can go there and your doctors have a star rating. Oh. And they didn't get that star rating if they had no practice against them or board complaints or whatever. Like, like I, look them up. I want to go to the best one I can go to. And everybody deserves to ask for the best. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much for being on the Depression Session. You're welcome. Thank you. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septahelix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.